When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before we jump into this latest episode of Music Buzz podcast, we wanted to acknowledge Lisa Roy. Lisa is a legendary name in the music industry, having worked in various facets over many of the past several decades. We want to send our condolences regarding Lisa and her recent passing to her family and friends and um, also to our guests on this episode of Music Buzz podcast, all of the guys and members of the immediate family, band, and all their associates that uh, know and love Lisa so much. I had the pleasure of working with Lisa, uh, not only on this interview, but some other things in the past, and uh, super pro. She will be dearly missed. But condolences to the band, particularly to Danny. We wanted to start off the show with that to begin with. Oftentimes, when we're trying to line up interviews, some of the cases we have direct relationships with the artists themselves. Other cases, we work with management. Um, in other cases, publicists and people we know and, uh, and uh, respect and work with in the business. And that's the case with Lisa for this interview. So enjoy the interview. Condolences to everybody. And uh, this uh, episode is dedicated to Lisa's memory. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. How are you doing, Hugh? I'm doing well, thank you, Andrew. Good. Today on the Music Buzz, we have not one guest, but five guests. Uh, so it's eight of us today. So it's really going to be a lot of talking, I hope. So if you're a fan of Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Stevie Nicks, Linda Ronstadt, Don Henley, Keith Richards, Carol King, of whom these guys recently performed with at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, and many, many more, then you're familiar with our guests today by virtue of their classic songs that they're a part of. The group is The Immediate Family, which is an awesome band name, by the way. 
They are a super, super group. That's what that was. I just decided to call you guys a super, super group. Not just a super group, but a oh, super, man. super group. <laughs> Two supers. I told you I liked him. <laughs> <laughs> the group features, and if I pronounce your names wrong, guys, I apologize. I'm going to do my best, okay? Uh, Danny Korchmar, Leland Scalar, Wadi Wachtel, Russ Kunkel, and Steve Postel. How'd I do? Oh, Postel. Dang it. Okay, close. After playing together for decades, for others, they've joined together and united as the immediate family. So welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, guys. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Man, it's kind of overwhelming, guys, but I'm going to start with Russ because he's the drummer. Man, I just want to say Fire and Rain changed the game for drummers playing a ballad. When you picked up brushes and did that, nobody that I can remember had ever done that before in the way that you did it. And uh, it influenced me a lot, especially I didn't pay that much attention to it when it first came out, when I started doing sessions about 40 years ago. One of the first sessions I did was say, hey, can you kind of give me that fire and rain thing? And, uh, you know, we got a lot of songs that are going to be in that vein. And I went home and went, wow, I never even thought about doing that. So just... The invention of that, I mean, the latest Mellencamp Springsteen single, I played brushes on it. So thank you for kind of leading the way with that kind of thing. Um, and just a great player all around. I'm trying to gonna try to mention a few projects and songs and albums that a lot of people maybe haven't heard that you guys have played on. We all know the hits and stuff. Lawyers in Love wasn't a real big record, maybe, but man... Uh, and Danny, you did arrangements on that record, I think. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and and the great Russ in his great fat back drumming on that's fantastic. So people who haven't heard that for a while, Tender is the Night, For a Rocker, that was a great one. Great album. People should go back and listen to that. One record that you guys were all on, and I knew it because I'm the biggest Warren Zevon fan in the world, and I've looked at the back of album covers my whole life. So when Johnny strikes up the band, now, if I'm not mistaken... All four of you guys are on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the greatest tracks, and I love the version that you guys did on your new project, but one of the coolest tracks, some of the greatest guitar work I've ever heard. When my guitar player in my band, my solo project, a lot of times I'll allude to that, okay, come up with something as cool as the lead guitar in that song, because that's fabulous. One of the best things I've ever heard. So. Yeah, you know, listen to the new version these guys did, listen to Warren's early version, both classic. And for Russ and Danny, again, the Crosby Nash live record that came out in 77, it's a record that I don't think a lot of people know about. It's so good. The band is smoking on that thing. It's over the top. It took the the recorded versions to another level and you know, that's something that I've used also to guys in my band. You know, we did it like this in the studio, but look at the way these guys, like Immigration Man, it burns on there. You listen to the 45, it's cool, but what you guys did to it, page 43 has some of the best guitar fills I've ever heard, and I'm assuming, Danny, that that's you playing that. It's it beautiful is. stuff. And Deja Vu, the nine-minute version, that's the best one I've ever heard. So people go back and check out that. I wanted to mention quickly, Leland, you played on one of my favorite records that nobody bought when it first came out. <laughs> Gene Clark's No Other. Wow. 
and yeah wonderful work i just wanted to mention you know thanks for your great playing on that i think that record's a classic actually i believe russ is on that russ too. is on six songs on it and danny you played on silver raven i guess so i don't remember but if you say so yeah i saw it yeah because I, I went back and looked so i checked the contract you're on it yeah he is so great stuff there what i wanted to talk about your new project is very cool stuff. Divorced is one of those things that I was kind of dancing in the garage with my wife when it started. I mean, <laughs> it's got one of those kind of grooves. So very cool. I like the covers on it. I like the tunes. But there's one tune in particular that really stands out to me that I feel like I want to go down to my local radio station and knock these guys in the head and say, if you don't play slipping and sliding. You know, if you'll play a Faces record and a Humble Pie record and you won't play that, there's something wrong with you. Because that's classic rock radio right there. Somebody's got to be pushing that single. That's badass, guys. Thank you. It was the first single, wasn't it? I, think. I believe it was. Well, I'm going to call everybody I know and say, start listening to this and asking for it because it needs to be heard. Really, really fabulous. Thank you so much for that. Let's go back to uh, when you guys first started in the recording world can you kind of go around the horn and tell us how you got involved in that and you know how you got started doing studio work you should start with leland well actually uh cooch goes back the farthest in terms of the thing that really got us on the map because he was with james taylor when they were going to do their first gig here in los angeles at the troubadour after james had done his first album the band was gonna, was already set to be russ on drums and danny on guitar and Carol King on piano, and they needed a bassist. And I had met James through a mutual friends in a band I was in, and they remembered me. Uh, he remembered me from this rehearsal, and they brought me in, and that was my first experience with with Cooch and Russ and Carol and James doing that. Okay, it was like the perfect storm at that time. There was there was there was kind of a mood to have something new happen, and James was like the perfect guy for this new movement in uh, in this kind of what became like the west coast sound we all were just uh, in the in the right place at the right time and it all just came together i mean in, in an amazing way and then um wadi came in shortly after that wadi and i had met on an, a different project and uh there's it, it's been very strange there's been a lot of little things that happened that brought people together to ultimately form this this grouping of people but uh we've been really blessed uh for the most part to have had five decades of work together and experience together and have it culminating into uh this lineup uh and, and doing it as ourselves and not as a backup band it's pretty bitching yeah that's great and i get up every day and pinch myself and think how lucky I am. Uh, and I even got up and pinched myself normally anyhow, but this is even better. <laughs> That's awesome. We're only immortal for a limited time. I get that. Yeah. Immoral? Did you say? I did not no. say that. No, that's forever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's permanent. Yeah. I hope that answers. I don't, I'm not sure what the hell I'm talking sure, about. Sure. Yeah. Russ, I mean, you, you were on those sessions for uh, Sweet Baby James. So how did you evolve into that? Well, Lee, Lee pretty much put it all into perspective uh, as far as the, the first connection with James Taylor. But prior to that, I was up in Los Angeles with a band of mine called Things to Come. We kind of uh, you know, ran that string out as far as we could. And I got married and I had to start making a living. 
And so I was fortunate enough to start doing publishing demos for ABC Dunhill Music. And I got to meet Larry Nechtel and Joe Osborne and a lot of other great studio musicians uh, in L.A. playing on these demos for $15 a song. We would do them over at American Recorders in the Valley and an engineer producer named Richie Podler, who also produced uh, Three Dog Night, recommended me for some other sessions. And so one thing led to another and I started, you know, doing sessions around town and then eventually you know, the James Taylor thing came along and that was really the linchpin that for all of our careers, meeting Peter Asher and working with James Taylor, uh, you know, certainly for Danny and, and Leland and I uh, kind of started, you know, what was the beginning of a, a long line of, uh, of successful recording endeavors for us. No question. And you were called upon as that unit too. legendarily. You were in inextricably the crew. Danny. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> I fell asleep. <laughs> You're asking about uh, when we started doing sessions. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yep. All right. Well, a lot of this has to do with Peter Asher tremendously. Uh, Peter is the one that put us all together. And we can't ever uh, say too much about Peter and the, the influence he had on our careers. It was monumental. And one of the reasons why was because he put our names on the albums. Now, when the Wrecking Crew was doing sessions, they never had their names on, on albums. That wasn't done. True. But Peter put all our names on uh, Sweet Baby James to start with. Lou Adler also put our names on Tapestry. And that really, that meant people knew who we were. And that was very much instrumental in people calling us uh, for, for other sessions and more and other work. What kind of a producer was Peter Asher? Was he a guy that kind of told you guys what to do, or did he just let you do? Is one of those guys that kind of let you let it evolve? He brought us in because he liked the way we played already. In other words, we wouldn't have been there if he didn't like. He wanted us to be ourselves, and that was the case. We also rehearsed before we went to the studio. We rehearsed, then we made the record, and then we went on tour with those people. So it was a whole package, and that that also is a very big difference between us and previous session guys, especially the Wrecking Crew. They stayed home; they never left town. We did. We went out with the acts we were working with. And that that was a huge, huge sea change, huge difference. And that's very interesting that you guys rehearsed and then went in the studio because we've done that with Mellicamp most of the time. Not always, but I've been there for 25 years, and that's usually the modus operandi is let's learn the tunes, figure out what works and what doesn't. Then we just go in and cut the tracks, you know, but that doesn't happen very often in the music business, I wouldn't no. think. Yeah. But it sure worked on those early records, as that's what you guys did, because they sure stand the test of time. Those must have been magic years, though, to be backing up the likes of Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor and Jackson Brown. It must have been amazing for you guys. Yeah. Well, it made it made us terrible snobs in terms of uh, uh, songs. You know, we we got you with the best, the best, the best. So we, you know, we we want we you know we're we're big snobs when it comes to what a, a good song is, because we work with the best songwriters imaginable. No question. We still need to hear Steve and Waddy's uh, beginnings uh, before we move on. Yes, we do. Mine was, was a very different thing. I, uh, I got a, a gig right out of a music conservatory to go on the road with John Raitt, Bonnie's dad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As, as an as a onstage troubadour guy and a man of La Mancha. And when I got back from that first tour... I immediately went on into the Broadway pits and all the guys in the Broadway shows did sessions all day. So it was sort of an immediate, you know, the conductors would call me. And so I got into sessions and it was a lot of film 
television stuff, a lot of jingles, a lot less of what these guys were making records. We did some. But that scene that I got into sessions was sort of through that, you know, orchestral guys, Broadway musicians, and those conductors. And, uh, and, and New York was, also I was in New York, they were in L.A. New York was really heavy into those kind of sessions, a lot of orchestral dates. Unfortunately, I read because I went to music school. and That beckons the question, you know, whenever I, I talk to conservatory-trained musicians, like people like Elton John and so on, what was the point that you said, yeah, I can read and I've certainly been classically trained, which I presumed you were. When did that mirror tilt towards your interest in rock and roll? My interest in everything else was first. I went to music school just so that I could make sure I had a job. My interest was always songs, rock and roll. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, when you were studying, were you also dealing with uh, classical guitar technique and so on did you did you have to go through all of that or were you just i was a double major classical guitar and composition yeah interesting yeah. yeah but uh but there was a day and that was all fine and one day i went uh i was playing for a little while with the band pure prairie league we opened up we played a gig with um uh down in uh texas and uh, oklahoma or whatever and i just I just realized if I kept, it was just such a cool scene that if I just kept staying in the studios playing jingles all the time, I'd never do the thing that I really loved. Yeah. And I just went, got a, got a bail on this or I'll just end up, you know, doing that the rest of my life. You chose wisely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Now, Lottie, what about you? Can you uh, give us, give us yours? I was working on a whole bunch of sessions around town and uh, I was working out in the Valley with uh, Keith Olson a lot. And that's where Leland and I met. We went, uh, Keith booked us both on a Bobby Womack session. I'd been working with Stevie Nicks and, and Lindsay and, and working with Keith on my own stuff and a lot of sessions he was producing. But Lee and I met there. And uh, shortly after that, I, I met Russell. We, we stopped each other in the middle of Santa Monica Boulevard in our matching 57 Chevys. And uh, Russell said, are you Waddy? And I went, yeah, are you Russ? He goes, yeah. He says, I got to go, but we'll be seeing a lot of each other. And uh, he was right. And shortly after that, I kept wondering who this guy Cooch was because uh, I was sick of him getting all this work <laughs> and couldn't understand why he was on all these records and I wasn't. And, uh, and I was working with a great producer named Nick Vinay who decided it was time for me to move on. And through a few things that he did, I got a call from Lou Adler's office to come and play on an album. And it was a Tim Curry record. That's when I met Danny and it was Russell and Leland and myself and Danny. And there we were, the start of this band started that day. And uh, Danny, what I, year was that? What year? I, 1941, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 1970, probably. 71. Yeah, 71. Yeah. Something like that. What years were the Keith Olsen encounters? Well, like 69, 70 into 71, I would say, you know, I don't know when the first Fleetwood album came out, but, like I did some work, I did a working on an album of my own. Stevie and Lindsay came down. I played on their record. Then the Fleetwood stuff came along for them. And by then I, I had been working with the Everleys and I started working with Linda. And it's, it's funny because the Peter Asher connection for me was Peter saw me playing with, with my brothers here on stage with Carol when, uh, cause Lou brought me along and we did her follow-up album called Thoroughbred to the tapestry record. 
And then we toured that record and uh, Peter came to the show and saw me and I got a call from him. Said, I want you to come and play for Linda. And that's how I got into the Peter Asher world. Was that, was that the Simple Dreams album, Wadi? Uh, before that. No, it was way before that. It was the uh, Hasten Down the Wind. Hasten Down the Wind record. And uh, she did that song. She did, a, you know, I started doing a few of Warren's tunes. And, uh, and I, I, the first thing I did for Peter, though, was uh, for JD, uh, his, his Simple Man, mm. Simple Dreams song. And uh, Peter, <laughs> Peter's, Peter's Circle was a very tight-knit little group. And, uh, and he was kind of resentful that JD said, you got to have this guy play on this. And he's going, who is this guy? And, and uh, but as soon as I heard that song, I kind of knew what to do on it. And Peter really dug what I did and offered me a drink after it. And I went, oh, OK, I guess uh, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm, I'm invited in now. Huh? He goes, yeah, you want to drink it? Shut up, you know. I said, okay, I'll have a drink. I'll have a drink. That's the audition. <laughs> and, uh, so you guys tell us all those backstories, which are amazing and awesome. Let's fast forward big time. You guys are just coming off a bunch of shows together, right? So, I mean, tell us about that experience. I mean, I looked at the set list. I was, uh, we were kind of texting back and forth today, Dane and Hugh and I were, and, you know, obviously some of the new tunes, but also some great old songs. So tell us about playing together in these uh, live shows you've been doing. Go ahead, Dan. Well, the live show. We just we did we just did three live shows, um, one after the other, and uh, every one of them was uh, we sold out every every gig, which is an amazing thrill for us. So it was a thrill to get on stage, and it was a double thrill to get on stage and look out at a packed house who were there to see us. There's nothing like that in the whole world. Nothing like that feeling, and you know that's it. And we combined, you know, original material, new stuff. All, all, everything we do is original. In other words, all the songs we do, we wrote them or co-wrote them. You know, all of them. So we do covers, but they're not really covers because they're our songs. Right. So um, that combined with new material that we've written, and that's what we keep doing. And uh, so it was, it's, it's just incredible to put together a set of all this material and, and uh, bang it out for the crowd and have them dig it. It's wonderful. The crowds were so great. They just were, they were I don't know who was happier, us or them. They were elated, and we were so overjoyed <laughs> to be on stage again playing. It was remarkable. There's got to be that element of, you know, fine. It's almost like it's being set loose, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel it was really great. Yeah, it was, it was fabulous. It was really great. When we first started doing this, it was always great. Cooch kind of pinned it where he would tell the audience that we're a cover band that only plays originals. You know, <laughs> nice. People got such a kick out of that because it really is true. I mean, this is, it's a unique situation. And the unique thing about this band is there's so many bands of this generation that are kind of doing they do nostalgia tours they're you know they're doing all the songs that they cut and you know had hits in the 80s and 90s and stuff and the fact that this band is still writing and creating new material and moving forward really sets us apart from i think a lot of other groups uh, of this ilk where we're not resting on past laurels and stuff we've got songs in there but new material is as strong as anything we've ever done and uh it's that's I think the thing that keeps it really exciting is that you know we're not wallowing in our history, but we're making history. Sure, and you're still prolific, and you're still interested. That's the other thing is being motivated and interested and successful. It's one thing to talk about it; it's quite another thing to do it well, mm -hmm. which you guys do. And still play your asses off. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, man! Listen to this record, slipping and sliding. I I swear I listened to it five times last night. <laughs> that's good. You know, that's the kind of groove that you can't teach. I don't think you can play that if you're 20 years old. I guess not. You know, you, it's a lived-in groove. 
You know, thank you. Thank I was going to say that the video for divorced is is fantastic. Too. Isn't it but, great? Yeah, man. The, yeah. the, inter, the interstate cool. uh, stuff is great, and just the just the little little clips that keep flashing at you during that. I thought I really enjoyed that. Right. Yeah. And I don't like videos anymore. I'll be honest. I mean, it's usually like, oh, I'll watch this video. I thought it was great. I, I watched the whole thing. We got real lucky, and we met a guy named Mike Perlmutter, who's a just happens to be super creative. We give him sort of little ideas and good, but he's come up with all kinds of great stuff. Oh, that's a good segue to my next questions. Being an art director and someone who's illustrated and designed a lot of covers, you mentioned Keith Olson. The White Snake cover in 1986 was one where I first met Keith, and then we went on to do Tesla and Lou Graham and a few other people. But covers have always mattered to me. I've always been motivated as a consumer. This is obviously a question for all of you. How much has art really mattered to you? How much have you been motivated as a consumer and as a musician? I mean, I know you've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes with a lot of notable people writing with and recording and doing the sessions, but how much say have you had in the artwork? How much have you even cared about the artwork throughout your careers? So we didn't have any say in it. It's up to somebody else, you know. Ah, okay. But I, I will say this, that yes, album, album packages did attract us. I can think of one uh, that um, I would go to Tower Records, and I've always walked by the, the booth that had these guys called the Whalers. I said, who the hell are these guys? They look cool. And the album was a lighter, a, a Zippo lighter. And oh, yeah, I remember that. I walked by it, I walked by it, I said, could this be any good? I don't know. Finally, I bought it, and I took it home, and I listened to it for six months. I mean, nothing but that, over and over again for six months. So the package did seduce me and kind of bring me in. That's one example I can give you. It's interesting because, because the way I discovered James Taylor was not by hearing the music. There was an album cover, that first record, where he's, he's like leaning back. Yeah. It just attracted me. I just, who's this guy? You know, and that and that would happen back then, and that's unfortunately, you know, that's that's over. It was love at first sight for you. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from my standpoint, I was an uh, art science co-majors in college, and I've been doing art my whole life. Ah. And art really always meant a great de deal to me in terms of album covers. And one of my favorite things was to peruse through record stores, Wallach's Music City here in LA or Tower, any of them. Yeah. I bought so many projects over the years where I was captivated by the album cover and I had no idea what the music was going to be in it. And some of it sucked and some of it was really incredible, but the artwork, I've always just had a, a real thing. And I think that's one of the greatest losses of contemporary music. Um, I mean, when you're putting an album uh, into this size thing, it doesn't have the same impact. It was it was so interactive with great artwork. Gratefully, the vinyl resurgence has taken some of that away. Yeah. Some of my clients like to do these indulgent, elaborate box sets. So we're now doing, you know, 40 page hardcover books with illustrations for every song. But you mentioned being attracted by the shelf appeal of records. What comes to mind, uh, Lee, about what are some of those good or not so good albums that pulled you in? I'm curious. God, I'd have to go dig back uh, into it again. I just, I just know that it had that impact on me because I was, yeah. especially when I was buying a lot of albums, it was still like my college days and I would save money to buy albums, which I still have lots of them. Yeah. Um, but I'd have to go dig through and see, you know, some of the stuff. But I mean, I just I'm a visual person. So I, I really found it really fascinating just to look at art. And I always sat around and I wanted to 
form like a metal band called Manhole, and I wanted the album to be around <laughs> and it be a Manhole cover all embossed. And, yeah. Yeah, I had lots of ideas for all <laughs> kinds of shit like that. And, you know. <laughs> Do you still paint? I haven't really in a long time. It's one of these things I kind of thought that in my later years, I'd be out in the past year and I would get back into my sculpting and painting and stuff again because of things like this band. The uh, the past year is still a few miles away. So We still need to hear from Russ and Wadi on that topic too before we move on here. The album with the Beatles, that, 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 I think that was their second album. It's just their, their, their face shots on the front of the album. And I, and I think that I don't know if it was a complete copy the rolling stones 12 by 5 album i think is the same thing it's just their faces on the on the album yeah and that i i always have loved that you know and then i was completely blown away by the white album just the absence of any art at all was it was a huge statement you know sure yeah one of my favorites only the beatles eh well the beatles are such an uh, such a huge influence not only on all of us but i mean it changed all of our lives you asked a question earlier someone did about where was the point at when you where where you went okay this is where what we want to do and i think for all of us it was it was uh, being exposed to the beatles you know that that changed yeah. all of us. yeah beatles beatles album meet the beatles album and uh 12 by 5 had that too but the, the uh that first Stones album, the uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, the Rolling Stones, The Shadow. English Hitmakers. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great one. And that's what our album cover, when we, we first had some mock-ups for it, it was very bright. And I sp spoke with the art director and, and I said, I, I, we need shadows. And I sent him those two albums. I said, this is what we got to be looking for. And he reminded me that uh, in our photo shoot, we did these shadowy shots. So I went, oh, that's right. So he and I looked at him and we picked the five shots that, that, that are there. And, uh, but that was the template for what we were doing exactly because those albums were just so striking to look at and, and mm -hmm. just caught you. You, know, you. you had to know what was going on inside that package. Yeah, no question. Those photos they have of you guys too are cool. They're really super cool. I, I do a lot of marketing PR stuff. So I see like everybody's press photos and a lot of them are pretty bad, but... They're really cool. They really stand out. The photo on your immediate family, the one that I'm seeing, um, is very reminiscent of, if I may say, a Norman Seif type photo. It's a beautiful portrait. Was it done in one session, or was there any compositing done to get that image? All composite. Five different images. The front cover is a composite, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure, because it was very well done. One day, one session, but it's five different individual shots it's like trying to have a box of puppies it's pretty hard to get everything happening all at the same time so <laughs> yeah. just keep taking pictures <laughs> and i'm so familiar with this thing called male vanity that it's it's a godsend to have photoshop now because if someone says i really love myself in this shot that used to be a nightmare and now it's like oh not no problem yeah so one question we like to and i want to go around the horn on this with you guys is tell us your first attended concert as a fan for me one of the most amazing concerts i ever saw and it was really quite literally one of my first concerts i was i was an usher at the hollywood bowl when the beatles played there wow i got paid five bucks to see the beatles i got right up near the stage and they were great i mean it was amazing my station was way up in the back of the bowl, and I said, the hell with this. I went down, left my station, and went right down to the reflecting pond in front. And uh, 
stood there until I was told to go back. That was one well-rehearsed band, for sure. Well, and didn't I read somewhere or hear that when you were working at the Bowl, didn't you, you said something about you saw the Beach Boys and the Love and Spoonful, and the Spoonful were smoking hot that night? They were so good that everybody left when the Beach Boys started playing. Yeah, we saw Jimi Hendrix and, and Vanilla Fudge on that. I stayed for the whole season, got to see the uh, Ravi Shankar India Festival, all kinds of stuff. What a great gig for a kid, man. That's yeah. fabulous. No yeah. kidding. What about you, Russ? What was your first one? I saw a lot of bands. I'm, I kind of, you know, cut my teeth in Long Beach, California, playing, you know, playing in bands. And, and so my band, we would play a lot of Elks clubs and things like that. But the first concert, if this is the question, that I actually paid to go see was Dick Dale and the Deltones at the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach. Wow. <laughs> okay, cool. That's cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was unbelievable. Danny, what about you? I used to see uh, in, in New York, you know, you grow up going to these uh, rock and roll shows. You know, they'd have these a lot of the black groups, a lot of singing groups. And then eventually the English bands started being on these stages. So and one of the shows that I saw, and again, it was the Love and Spoonful. These guys, I don't know who they were. I mean, they, you know, the, uh, wow. Do You Believe in Magic had only been out for about a week or two. And at this show, there was like. Nashville Teens and the Zombies and uh, Wilson Pickett and all these great acts. And there were these four guys, just these <laughs> bum-looking guys hanging out on the side of the stage. Around, Who the hell are those guys? What's going on here? And all of a sudden, they introduced the Love and Spoonful. And instead of doing magic, they did Night Owl Blues, which wow. was the most amazing oh, yeah. thing I ever heard. The Sebastian Arp was incredible. Yali was an unbelievable guitar player. They played this nasty blues that I don't even think they played Do You Believe in Magic? They just wow. played that for a while and they split, but it was unbelievable. And when I moved out here, I was uh, a big Leon Russell fan. And there was a show at the Long Beach Arena mm. and this new guy called Elton John was opening. And I'd heard your song on the radio. I'm going, yeah, nice, pretty big, big deal. And I couldn't wait to get to the show to see Leon. Elton and Dee Murray and Nigel Olsen came out on that stage. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. It sounded like a hundred people on the stage. When they did Burn Down the Mission, I was looking around that the arena going, where's all that orchestra yeah. coming from? Yeah. And it was just the piano and the, and the bass. That was it. Elton was unbelievable. That's great. Thanks, Waddy. What about you, Danny? Well, you know, growing up in New York, like Waddy and, and Steve, there's tons of music everywhere. In the 60s, you, you could not throw a rock without hitting some genius. There was just so much going on, so much incredible music. But if you're asking me, the first concert I saw was uh, it was a, a, a place called Freedom Land, which was this, uh, what was it, Waddy? It was a, like a carnival. A music bar. Right. And uh, at there was, when we went there, I went there specifically to see the Motor City Review which was all these Motown acts. They were on the road. They were playing everywhere. So it was Marvin Gaye and the Spinners, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, uh, uh, Smokey and the Miracles, uh, you know, and, and, and some others. It was the most incredible thing I ever saw. I couldn't believe my ears. And it really lit me up like a, like a Christmas tree. So that was the first of many great shows that I got to see in New York. Fantastic. That's great. Very cool. That's awesome. What about you, Steve? Like Danny said, growing up in New York in that era, every weekend, you saw legends. It was incredible. But the first one, uh, a friend of mine's older brother 
took us. I didn't know what I was going to see. It was Johnny Winter and I was 13. So it was Johnny Winter and Rick Derringer. They had fans on the stage, their hair and the capes were flowing back. And, and I was like, okay, I'm getting a, a lot of electric guitars in my life. I'm I got to do that. Yeah. When I lived in New York, looking at the times and trying to decide what to do that week, the wealth, the embarrassment of riches that was New York, whether it's a jazz, jazz club or the gardens, it was insane how much choice there was there. I couldn't believe it. I'm sure that con- continues to today. L.A. was so alive in the 60s, too. I mean, it was a similar thing. There were so many clubs from the Whiskey and Gazzari's and Pandora's Box and the Golden Bear. and all. I mean, there were so many clubs, the folk clubs like the Ash Grove and it was an incredibly vital music scene, kind of mid-60s to the end. And then they had the, the summer riots in 68, and a lot of places got shut yeah. down at that point. Uh, but there was a ton and tons of music going on every every week. When you'd look in the uh, L.A. Times, and it would have, like, the entertainment section, and it was pages of stuff going on that doesn't exist anymore at all. It's really heartbreaking. And those are the like the Laurel Canyon years you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So what's next for the for the immediate family? What, what's what's next for you guys as you're uh, as you're rocking through the next through this new year heading into 2022 and beyond? Well, we're on the road starting Friday. We're leaving for uh, the East Coast Friday, doing a six show run. Then we're looking to book as much as we can as uh, 22 comes comes around. We want to be everywhere. Is that is our yeah? That's our goal is to play everywhere we can. And uh, plus, we started on a new on next round and, so. and the documentary film. We're working and writing, recording. Very and, cool. Uh, so th- there's a yeah. lot going on. It's just uh, just keep pushing. You know, now, now that we can do it, it's been right. so uncertain for so long these past couple of years. So where's the new album heading musically? Are you uh, switching it up, or are you gonna? Is it just a wealth of songs that you had that couldn't go on the first album? Psychedelic jazz, all instrumental. Oh, really? <laughs> that would be no. We have old and new material. You know, uh, the writers in the band are always coming up with new stuff. So we've got, you know, I got a bunch, bunch more material. I can't say uh, uh, thematically whether it's different or the same. You know, it's one tune at a time the way we do it. Yeah. yeah. But it all has to have that big beat. It has to have. It has to be rock and roll. Yeah. And it has to have that power. Well, I'll tell you what. Just for me. I want to hear a couple more slipping and sliding like rock tracks like that on this next project. Got it. You've already got it's there. Come on now. That's the song that I'm going to be listening to until at least Christmas religiously every day to remind myself, you know what? There is still rock and roll out there. That's a great compliment, man. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that. I'm still trying to process my disappointment that you're not going to do any psychedelic jazz in this album. But <laughs> hey, you never know. Well, it ain't, it's not all done yet. You might get your wish. <laughs> Steam up the label. There's a secret track. Ah, play it backwards. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, God bless you guys, man, and, and have fun on the road. Andy, Dean, Hugh, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you for joining with us, guys. Best wishes. Take care. See ya. Thanks Take again. Care. Take care. Great honor to see you guys. Our pleasure. Take care. Keep rocking, guys. All the best. All right. Thank you so much, man. And that's a promise about rocking. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 